This, uh, this past week, there was a, uh, a television special on in which they interviewed a Navy SEAL. Some of you saw it, I'm sure. Others of you probably not. But it was really quite a very interesting interview because they, they interviewed this Navy SEAL who's formerly a part of SEAL Team 6, the nation's most elite fighting force. And it was the, the uh, SEAL Team 6 group that both rescued Captain Phillips from the Mercs, Alabama, as well as uh, hunted down Osama bin Laden. And as they interviewed him, uh, there were many things about the interview I found fascinating, but one thing that stood out to me was the intensity of combat. To be in those kinds of settings with that kind of pressure, life and death, takes a certain kind of individual and it takes its toll. After 16 years, the man said, I couldn't do it any longer, and he retired. There was a lot of stress involved in, com- in combat. Well, beloved, there's, uh, there's a lot of intensity and stress involved in verbal combat spiritual combat. If you've ever found yourself engaged in, a, in an intense spiritual conversation in which you are, you are wrestling, there's a tug of war, as it were, for the, for the soul of a man or a woman or a boy and a girl, you know what I'm talking about. It can leave you exhausted. What I want to look at you with you this morning, and I'm going to direct you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, is the beginning, really, of of an intense day of spiritual, verbal combat between the Lord Jesus Christ and the leadership of the nation of Israel. Let me review just quickly for you to sort of locate us in the particular text. We're going to be looking at verses 23 and following, but just to remind you of the events of the Passion Week. Chapter 21, Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 through 11, cover, from Matthew's point of view, the triumphal entry. That's that Sunday event where Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. He was acclaimed by the people as he came into the city as their king. He walked around the temple. He observed that it was later in the afternoon. Temple activity had diminished. He looked around and he left for the day. That's Sunday. And the next day is Monday, in which he again comes into the city early. Verses 18 through 22 of Matthew chapter 21. Pardon me, back, back that up again, I'm sorry. Uh, verses 18 through nine, the first half of 19 of Matthew chapter 21 covers the first part of that day in which he cursed the fig tree. And then, in verses 12 and 13, Matthew provides for us Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Those were the major events of Monday. The major events of Monday. Tuesday, he comes back into the city again, and and the disciples discover the cursed fig tree. And then you pick that up in Matthew's Gospel in the second half of verse 19, and then running through verse 22. So the cursing of the fig tree happens early Monday morning. The discovery of the cursed tree and its lesson is given early Tuesday morning. Matthew combines them together for his purpose. Beginning in verse 23... 
of Matthew chapter 21, and really pretty much now running chronologically all the way through the end of chapter 23, so all the way through verse 39, is this period of verbal combat. Verbal combat. It'll all occur on Tuesday. It'll begin Tuesday morning. It'll run the length of Tuesday until reasonably late in the day, and it'll be a series of one encounter after another as each Uh, party amongst the leadership of the nation of Israel comes to take their shot at Jesus. And they are out to get him. They are out to undo him. They are out to destroy him. Following that, in chapters 24 and 25, after they have left the temple, they're looking back onto the temple, Jesus gives, in response to to his uh, disciples talking about how beautiful Herod's temple is, Jesus gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25, When he speaks about the future destruction of the temple and the hardship that will come across the nation of Israel prior to the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. For this scheme, I'm persuaded that Wednesday becomes a silent day in which Jesus sends the nation home, as it were, to think about what he has said and to make their minds up. Will they side with him or will they side with the leadership with whom he has been doing combat the last couple of days. Now, these events of the Passion Week are, are critical. It's critical that we understand this, and it's, and it's critical, I think, to understand in order to really grasp the significance of this, is to, to understand how Jesus orchestrated the events of these couple of days. And he did so, so that the most awful and at the same time the most glorious event, that which was planned in the sovereign plan and decree of God, that is that God himself would come into space and time, take human flesh and die in the place of his people, so that that great event would come to pass exactly as the prophets had foretold. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Sunday, mounted on the, on the foal of a donkey, and he was absolutely acclaimed by the common people. They poured out to, to speak their praise of this one. Hosanna to the son of David. And then when Jesus did this, he was invading the domain of the Pharisees. He was invading the domain of the Pharisees. They were the, pop, the leaders of the popular people, the common people. Their, their leadership influence was dispersed throughout the land through the synagogue system. And so when he came into the city that way and the crowds turned out to acclaim him as Messiah, he piqued the hostility of the Pharisees and pushed it over the top. He pushed it over the top. On the next day, when he comes into the city on Monday and he cleanses the temple, he publicly humiliated the Sadducees. For the Sadducees were the elite leadership of the nation and controlled the temple area. So by, by cleansing this temple, he publicly humiliated them and he pushed them to the point of explosion. So now he has the Pharisees, uh, they're done with him. He has the Sadducees pushed over the edge. And now these two former enemies will come together on Tuesday and they will seek to partner to destroy him. To destroy him. And the first way they will do that is, is to try to best him in public debate. 
They will attempt to best him in public debate, to discredit him before the people, to catch him saying something perhaps that would be offensive to Rome, and then they might get him taken away and executed as a rebel. So they go after him. But they ultimately fail. And as we will see over the next few weeks, beginning this morning, they will ultimately fail at this. And so they will resort by the end of the day on Tuesday to bribing one of his disciples to betray him. That's the sequence of events. So this morning, looking here at verses 23 through 32, we're going to see the first round, the first round of the verbal battle. The first round of the verbal battle between Jesus and the leadership of Israel. And this verbal battle can be reduced to two critical questions. Just two critical questions. The first question, beginning in verse 23, running through verse 27, is the question of authority. The first is the question of authority. Now, it's Passover season. It's Passover season. And what that means is that the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding environs is absolutely bulging at the gills with with pilgrims that have come in for this mandatory feast and this glorious feast. The people liked the Passover feast. And so they would pour into the city. They would come from the north in Galilee, where at this time, the majority of the Jews actually lived in Galilee, not in the south. And so they would travel in, and pilgrims would come from all over the Roman Empire. This is Jewish pilgrims. They would flock to the city of Jerusalem. And so at this time of year, the the population of the city, which was normally about 80,000 permanent population, would grow, and the estimates are crazy. Some of the estimates say as much as 2 million people. Now, I don't know if it got that big, but it certainly uh, grew into the many hundreds of thousands, many hundreds of thousands of people. So it it was a happening place. And everybody couldn't stay inside the city walls, and so they would spread out onto the hills that surround the city, and they would camp out. All for the Passover feast. Now the Sadducees, they loved the Passover. And they loved it because this was the most lucrative time of year for them. This was the time to make money. Because as the pilgrims came in, they had to get their their coinage exchanged to the proper coinage to make their gifts and offerings. They had to buy the sacrificial animals. They'd need all the things for their feast. You don't carry it with you. You buy it there. And so they are making merchandise out of the people, and they're making a killing at it. And then in comes this prophet from Nazareth, and he disrupts the entire operation. He disrupts the entire region. Monday and Tuesday, Mark tells us, he possesses the temple mount and he forbids the commercialization process to continue. And listen, you want to to get somebody irritated at you, you hit them in their wallet. You hit them in their wallet. And that's exactly what he has done. It's exactly what he has done. Now, it's Tuesday morning. He's cleansed the temple on Monday. The Sadducees have gone home. They have smoldered all night long. You can kind of figure out how this is going to go, right? They are peaked. And so they come back in on Tuesday morning early. Here is Jesus, and they go right at him. 
they go right at him. And the, and the question they come at him with is the question of authority. By what authority are you doing this? Verse 23. When he entered the temple, Tuesday a.m., write it in your Bible if you want to. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now the chief priests, that's a, that's a, that's a title, the chief priests, and it, and it actually gathers up a, a, a group of individuals. Of five different kinds of individuals are gathered together under this, this title called the chief priests priests. And these groups are as follows. It is the, it is the various high priests. Okay. The high priests. Now, originally the way God gave it, the high priest was a lifetime appointment to office. It began with Aaron and then it would go to his sons. It was something that one inherited and you were the high priest for life. Well, by this time, the uh, office of the high priest had become a political plum that could be bought and sold because they were under the overlordship of both Herod and Rome. And so that's exactly what happened. And so you have multiple high priests existing at the same time. The way you handle that is that they're all high priests and they're all part of the establishment system. So the various high priests are part of this category called chief priests. Beyond that, there are the families of the various high priests. So all of them are included in this. Beyond that, there's the captain of the temple guard. He is part of the chief priests. There is the individual in charge of the financial affairs of the temple. You know, you've got to keep it all close to you. This is a closely held uh, business. And so the uh, person in charge of the money, a part of the chief priests. And then finally, the leaders of the various uh, weekly orders of priests who would come and do temple service for a week and then would leave and another group would come. The overseers of that were part of this group called the high or the chief priests. So the chief priests is a, is a large, relatively large group, and they are called Sadducees. They are called Sadducees. And they make up a significant portion of the ruling council of the nation known as the Sanhedrin. Beyond that, we're told here, it's the chief priests, and notice it's the elders of the people. Do you see that? The elders of the people. Who are the elders of the people? Well, originally, they were the heads of the various clans in the nation of Israel. But by this time, it was not so much that as it was the heads of the various wealthy and aristocratic families of the nation. And so it was the movers and shakers, the power players among the nation of Israel at this time. They are the elders of the people, and they too are part of the Sanhedrin. So they come to Jesus. And it's not surprising that they come to Jesus. They immediately, you know, as soon as the place opens up and he's there, notice in verse 23, uh, he enters the temple to begin to teach and they immediately descend on him. And it's not surprising uh, because his activities of the prior day presume an authority. They presume an authority that surpasses that of the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the ones who rule the temple. So how can someone else come in and basically upend their operation? And so they come at him with a question of authority. 
Specifically, the question breaks down to, you see it here. He says, by what authority are you, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So it's two questions, both related to authority. And essentially the first question is this, what type of authority do you have that allows you to override our authority by controlling what goes on in the temple? Okay, you're, you're, you're saying your authority is greater than ours. Well, what type of authority is greater than ours? Second question, who, what person do you claim gave you this kind of authority? Now listen, leaders had long ago rejected the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah. They had long ago rejected that possibility. So the questions they're asking him here are not to discover an answer. They are to design to trap him, to trap him. And they, and they think they've got him here. They think they got him because if they question the type and the source of the authority that enables him to disrupt the temple, they, they're going to exploit, or they think they're going to exploit, what they believe is his, his vulnerability. And it kind of goes like this. If he answers that he has divine authority, then they will accuse him of blasphemy. They will accuse him of blasphemy. They did just as much in John chapter 10 and verse 33. So they think they've boxed him into the corner. If he claims divine authority, they're going to to accuse him of blasphemy. But if he doesn't uh, say that his authority comes from, from God, but that his authority is from men, and clearly they didn't authorize him, they're going to accuse him of being a rebel. That is, operating outside of the traditional authority structures of the nation. You can't just come in and proclaim yourself the big boss. So if you're not God, it's not, you're not claiming God's authority, and, you, and, you're, and you're not willing to claim men's authority, we've got you. We're going to push you into one or the other, and either way, you're either going to be considered a rebel, or you're going to be considered a blasphemer. We've trapped you. We got you. Foolish people. Foolish people. To think they can outwit God? Jesus says to them, verse 24, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus picks up the question of authority and he just turns it right back on them. Turns it right back on them. And and he does it using a a time-honored system of rabbinic debate. This This is understood in that day. Okay, what he's doing is they understand what the, the process, and that is to answer a question with a question. It's very, was very acceptable, very common. So he answers their question with a question of his own, verse 24. Here's the question, verse 25. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Beloved, you are looking at rhetorical jujitsu. Okay, this is a supreme illustration of a rhetorical jujitsu move. And that is that, that you take the question they've asked, which is designed to, to lay you flat on your back on the mat, as it were, and you flip it and turn it back on them, and all of a sudden they're flat on the mat. Their trap that they set for you becomes the trap that catches them. 
And in the process, it will reveal to everyone that they are disqualified to lead the nation. This is a question of authority. And he is going to crush their perceived authority right now. And by the way, he does it in front of the gathered crowds. This is not something that happens in the corner in secret. It is right in front of the crowds. And listen, the people love it. They love it. Reminds me when I was a kid on the school ground, right? Whenever someone yelled, fight, where does everybody run? Right? Towards the fight. Same thing here. Everybody runs towards the fight. They want to see this one played out. Now, the reference here in verse 25, the baptism of John, that that reference, the baptism of John, that's just a, 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 a... a way to refer to his entire ministry. Okay, it's a way to refer to his entire ministry. To refer to his baptism, which was sort of the, the, the uh, signature event of his ministry, is a way to capture his entire ministry. So it's not a question about water. It's a question about his ministry. The entirety of his ministry. And his ministry was to prepare the way for Messiah for Jesus, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John 1, they come to him and they say, hey, are you the Messiah? He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Well, who are you? I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. I am the forerunner of Messiah. And by the way, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now, here's the the genius of this. Since John is the forerunner of Jesus, it's obvious they both derive their authority from the same place. From the same place, the same source. If John is sent from God to proclaim this message, then the person he points to must be from God. Must be from God. That's why he's got them. See, if they, if they acknowledge this, that, that, that John the Baptist is sent from God, then they have to acknowledge their obligation to believe in the one to whom John points. The one whom the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, running through verse 4, speaking of the Messiah himself, the one who says the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The authority over the temple belongs to Messiah. It belongs to Messiah. By the way, Jesus' question here contains the answers to their two questions, doesn't it? Basically, if they get his question right, they don't need to ask theirs. Verse 25, and they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. Now, the tense of the verb here, the Greek imperfect, indicates that this is is a back and forth discussion, conversation. It's going back and forth. Okay, oh, we can't say this. If we say that, he's going to do that. Oh, I can't say that, because if we say this, you know, this is going to happen. And so they are back and forth, back and forth. If the Sadducees recognize John's authority as being from God, then their unbelief in the Messiah will be exposed. They'll prove themselves illegitimate leaders of the nation. They are are to point to Messiah. 
But if they deny John's status is from God, they fear the crowds will be angered because the crowds all believe John is from God. And the resulting riot will bring Rome down on them and they'll lose it all. Verse 27. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. We do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authorities, authority I do these things. They're trapped. They're absolutely trapped. This is cold. This is calculating. This is hard-hearted. As one writer said, realizing they were caught in a dilemma from which they could not escape, his enemies took refuge in the silence of willful agnosticism. What an indictment. What an indictment. How does Jesus respond to their hard-hearted agnosticism? He refuses to throw his pearls before swine. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They are bested in rabbinic debate. They continue to seethe. They continue to burn. They continue to smolder in silence. Round one. Jesus won. Sadducees, zero. The question of authority. It brings a secondary question here, the question of obedience. The question of obedience, beginning in verse 28. They're silent, right? They say, we don't know, we can't answer, we don't have anything to say. So Jesus breaks the silence, verse 28, and he says, but what do you think? But what do you think? He's now addressing them. He is inviting them to, to enter into a story that he's about to tell. He's going to tell them a parable. He's going to tell them a parable about a father and his two sons, and he's going to invite them to ponder the truth of this parable. Now he's speaking to them, but the crowds are all around. So he's speaking to them for the benefit of the crowds by this parable he will indict the sadducees that is the chief priests and the elders of the people as unfit to lead the nation unfit to lead the nation listen if you can't recognize the authority of of john as the prophesied forerunner or you know it and you fail to respond to it then there's no way you're qualified to sit in the seat of Moses and judge the nation. Verse 28, here's the story. A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. No sin. In the ancient world, the respect of a child for their father was to was sacrosanct. 
You were to obey him. You were to respect him. It was expected. The law contained provisions for stoning a rebellious and disobedient son. The right of a father over his, over his household included the right to command his son to go to work in the family business, the field, the vineyard in this case. For a son to refuse to do this would be highly insulting. It would be scandalous. Think of the, think of the, the story of the prodigal son, right? Scandalous. For a son to refuse to obey their father's command, it is the picture of a son who is in complete rebellion against the authority structure over him. It's to put the, the status in jeopardy of whether you are even a son at all. How can you be my son and refuse my command to you? You are in a very, very perilous place. And then we have the second son. This second son, notice he, he has an initial willingness and, and even a respect for the father's position, right, of authority. Notice how he, re, he responds to the father here in the, in the parable. He says, I will, sir. Very respectful. I will, sir. I mean, he appears to be the model son, doesn't he? First son, nope, I'm not going to go. Of course, he then later regrets and repents and goes. Second son, you bet, Dad. Be right there. Be right there. Be right there. He never goes. Never goes. It's all lip service. The second son is a perfect picture of the leadership of the nation. This is a perfect picture picture of the leadership of the nation they give god surface compliance they're running the sacrificial system in his temple but they refuse his messiah they refuse his messiah i mean the contrast here is stark the first says no and regrets it and, and changes his mind and he does the father's will the second says yes sir but he never follows through Never. Now Jesus springs the trap. Verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, in the, in the, in the first question on authority, right, they, they had sort of evaded his trap. At least they thought they had. By retreating into silence. By retreating into this willful agnosticism. By, you know, we can't say that it's from God and we can't say it's from men. So we'll just say, we don't know. We don't know. We're agnostic. They fall into this one. They fall into this trap. They answer his question. And in the process of answering his question, they condemn themselves as unfit to lead the nation. Which of the two did the will of his father? Or said another way, when God speaks from heaven, how should a true son respond? They said, the first. 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Listen, tax collectors, prostitutes. Two groupings of people that were, that were considered the dregs of society by any pious Jew. Tax collectors were, were people who had turned their back on their own people. Jews who had turned their back on the nation of Israel in order to collect taxes for the hated government of Rome. They were notorious for being swindlers. The tax system in that day, it operated as a franchise. Rome would sell tax collection franchises. You would bid for them. You would say to the Roman government next year, and you would bid it with a multi-year contract. I, I can supply you with X amount of revenue over this period of time from this particular province. And the highest bidder wins. And then you have the full authority of the Roman government to go into this province and to collect taxes. And anything you collect more than you have to remit to Rome is yours. You can see how the system is rife for corruption and swindling. Basically, the only caveat here is is don't collect so much that you cause a rebellion. You squeeze them to the edge. Just don't push them over. And there will be a series of sub-franchises until you got down to, to the individual tax collector. Ripping off his people. They were hated. They were despised. They were were considered outside of all possibility of redemption. Access to Messiah's kingdom. The tax collectors. Then there were the prostitutes. Prostitutes. These were women who had abandoned their people. They had abandoned their God. Rather than trusting in the charity of their God, in the system that had been set up to care for them, they instead had engaged in, in a vile and immoral behavior for money. They're outside the pale. The tax collectors and the prostitutes. And notice what Jesus says. Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. Beloved, this is shocking. This is absolutely shocking language. Jesus says, why? Because they have responded in faith to to God the Father and, and is preaching through John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And thus they are assured a place in the kingdom. On the other hand, those who are the spiritual guardians of the nation, they will not enter at all. Verse 31 will get into the kingdom before you. A better way to translate that, I think, is instead of you. Instead of you. They will enter, you will not. Why? Why will they enter and why will you not? Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. 
And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe. Coming in the way of righteousness, that's that's an interesting little phrase there. It's it's basically just another way of saying that coming with with the full support of heaven. Coming with the full support of heaven. The ministry of, of John the Baptist, he, he came to you in the way of righteousness. That is, he, he came to you as God's man, preaching God's message. And his message was a, a testimony to Jesus, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? I am merely the forerunner. I am, a, I am the spokesman. By the way, Jesus did answer their two questions here. John came in the way of righteousness. That is the answer to the question of where did your authority come from? Okay, it's a veiled answer to be sure, but it is an answer. And seeing John's ministry, you did not believe. You did not believe, nor did you afterwards feel remorse so as to believe. The idea here is when John came preaching, you did not repent. You remember John says to them in in Matthew 3, he says, Who basically told you to come here, you brood of vipers? Bring forth works in keeping with repentance. They did not accept him. They did not believe in John the Baptist. But beyond that, as they witnessed the fruit of the ministry of John the Baptist, which is tax collectors and prostitutes repenting of their sin and coming to believe and follow the Son of God, they didn't change for that either. They were so hard-hearted. So hard-hearted. Beloved, they are the fruitless fig tree. They are the fruitless fig tree of the prior day. The promise of a harvest. I will, sir. And empty branches. Empty branches. Listen, these people are doubly damned. Doubly damned. They refuse to repent at the preaching themselves, and they refuse to repent when they see the effect of the preaching on others. Doubly damned. Now, it's probably, uh, maybe I can head off a question or two here to just make a statement about textual issues here, because this part of the gospel is a difficult textual area. And what I mean by that is that the, among the, the, the ancient manuscript families, there is a division on exactly how this is pre- uh, presented. That is that some of the ancient manuscripts show the first son as saying no and then repenting. Others show the, the second son saying no and then repenting. So there's a question. Is it the first son that repents or the second son? Okay. And so, for example, the, the New American Standard uh, Update Translation 95 Uh, The English Standard Version, the King James Version, all have the first son refusing and then repenting. 
But if you're using an older New American Standard version, the 1977 version, they went with the other manuscript families and they have the second son doing the repenting. So which is it? Is it the first son or the second son? Are you ready? We don't know. We don't know. Nobody can know for sure. There's strong manuscript evidence in both directions. But listen, don't let that bother you because the point of the parable remains. The point of the parable remains. It is not changed. The parable explains why the leadership of the nation refused their Messiah. Why? Because they had refused John. John came and he preached. John is the one that Jesus said is the greatest among men. And they refused him. They refused his message. And by refusing John, they had shut themselves off to Jesus. Because of this, God could not and God would not reveal himself to them. They are like Isaiah 6. He has smeared over their eyes. Again, it would be easy to step back from this passage, shake our heads as we walk out the door and marvel at the blindness of fallen humanity. And we should. But I think there's perhaps some lessons that we can draw from this. Quickly, I'll share them with you. I've got three. First is this. The parable teaches that that sonship is measured by obedience and only the obedient are sons. Did you get that? Sonship is measured by obedience and only obedient are sons. Lip service does not make one a son of the king. Said another way, those who are or claim to be God's people show it. They show it by knowing and doing his will. By the way, this is a consistent message of Jesus. This is Jesus' message. Go to Just flip back quickly to chapter 7, verse 21. Where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Chapter 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and Mother. Or that night in the upper room in John 14. And verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talking about his ministry. He has been appointed as an apostle for a purpose. And here it is, verse 5, Romans 1, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Listen, faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. If there is no obedience, there is no faith. No obedience, no faith. That's exactly what this parable teaches here in Matthew 21. Sonship is measured by obedience. Second lesson. Forgiveness for those who repent is available no matter what your past. Wow, is that encouraging. The tax collectors and the prostitutes. Those parts of society that are, would be considered absolutely beyond all hope. Those who had turned their backs are the ones who, upon repentance, are invited into the kingdom. Listen, beloved, that is so super encouraging. Listen, if you're here this morning and you think, I am beyond the grace of God. If you really knew what my thoughts are like, if you knew what I had done, if you knew what I have said, then you would know that God has no place for me. I would say to you, you could not be more wrong. You could not be more wrong. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, you cannot clean yourself up and come to God. You can't do it and he doesn't require it. You come to him just as I am. Just as I am. Forgiveness is available for all who repent. For all who repent. And third, complacency for either group is deadly. Complacency for either group is deadly. The first group who said, I will not come, if they had not changed, if they had not regretted and repented and and done the Father's will, they would have been cut off. The second group who said, I will go, but didn't, is cut off. As one writer said, this passage teaches that discipleship is fundamentally about deeds, not words. Deeds and not words. The glory in it is is that your initial words can always be reversed by subsequent deeds. So one writer said, disciples are obligated to persevere and sinners are obligated to repent. Good truth. Good truth. May God in his mercy and grace apply the truth of this passage to our hearts just exactly where we need to hear it. Father, thank you for your word and Father, as we trace the last days, even hours of the life of our Savior, to see him in this open combat with his enemies, we are struck by the hardness of the human heart, particularly human hearts that have, that have been exposed 
to truth and yet have refused it along the way and thus have built up such a, a hardness about them, such a shell around their hearts. And God, I pray for, for us, for those among us who have been here week in and week out, year after year, and have heard the word of God spoken and read, preached. They've sat through repeated appeals to repent and believe and, and yet have not. And Lord, I, I pray for your mercy for them. Pray that this morning you would break through that hardness. They would flee to the cross of Christ. And I pray for us, Father. I pray for us who do believe. That you would help us to recognize that, that lip service is an insult. To sing, trust, and obey, for there is no other way. And to refuse to trust and to refuse to obey makes us a hypocrite. But God, do your divine surgery, we pray. Transform, change your people. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.